Well, today, as was mentioned, today is the first Sunday in the season of Lent. Now, again, I always remind, thinking of Evars, I, I, I'm always, uh, uh, it's important to say that the church calendar is a, it's a tool, it's a tool, and we use it as such, as an opportunity to reflect on things that we think require some attention. Um, Lent is a heavy season. I was telling the students at Chapel Field this. Uh, Lent is a heavy season, but we need heavy seasons. Now, every day can't be heavy. The whole year can't be heavy. We don't, we don't want to be morose. Uh, and hence, we have a long season of Easter as well, where we celebrate. You know? But Lent is a season of fasting. It's a season of contemplation. It begins with Ash Wednesday in the tradition of the church, where traditionally Christians would have their foreheads marked with ashes, with the idea of, you know, from ashes, you know, ashes to ashes, you know, from dust you came to, uh, from dust you came to dust you will return. Um, it, it's a contemplation of death. You can't, you, you can't walk around constantly contemplating death, but it's a dangerous thing to walk around never contemplating death. It is important for us to contemplate our mortality. It's important for us to contemplate the fact that we are sinners and that we need to repent. And we don't want to walk around constantly, you know, just beating ourselves on the back and, you know, I'm a sinner, I'm a worm, I'm not a man, you know. Um, but there are seasons for it. There are psalms in the Psalter that are psalms of joy and praise and celebration and strike up the band, get the timbrels and the lyres and all the other ancient you know, um, instruments. Hooray! And then there's, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's, there's the recognition of our sin. There's, there, this, these are both aspects of our Christian life that we have to reckon with. And so I, I find the church calendar helpful to give us times and say, okay, here, this is a good time to think about this. If you don't need it, that's okay, but it's a helpful thing. So we're not, we're not bound to it, but uh, we make use of it, if you will, and glad to do it. And it's kind of, I don't know, I find a certain uh, a delight in knowing that Christians all over the world are also contemplating this. We're in this together. It's something, we're not just off on our own having this thought. Christians all over the world are contemplating this uh, in this season. So something beautiful about that, something Catholic with a small C, you know, it's like a, it, it pulls us together. Uh, Christians across the denominations to be thinking about this is a beautiful thing. So in this season of Lent, we're breaking away from our look at Ephesians and we're going to contemplate repentance. There are different themes we could take up, but the one we're going to take up over the next several weeks is repentance. And so as we start and launch out into this, in, in some sense, this will be practical, very practical for us. You know, this is not high lofty theological stuff we're dealing with, though it, it is that, but this is going to touch ground. You know, this is what, what we're going to be talking about here has practical implications. We can take this stuff away and, and go do it. And so I want to encourage us all, myself included, to think about the need for repentance and then actually doing it, using the spiritual disciplines to help us repent. So we'll be looking at repentance from all uh, a bunch of different angles. Now, what we're taking up in this first week is the ministry of John the Baptist here in Luke chapter 3, which was read to us today as our word of exhortation, page 906. And John is, now we've seen this, this is in all the Gospels, John's ministry of uh, baptism and the baptism of Jesus. Uh, John has already been uh, noted by the gospel writers as that one from Isaiah crying out in, a, in the wilderness. 
uh, prepare the way of the Lord. Uh, he is the messenger that is coming before Messiah and announcing. I mean, let's let's face it. The monarchy has been gone for a long time. Israel has been sent out into exile, and though she has returned in some way, trickled back into her homeland. Remember the, 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 the announcements to Ezekiel and the prophets were that, yes, you're going out into exile, but I'm going to bring you back and establish you in the land. But remember, it was a tepid return. The, the people kind of didn't want to return. And then they kind they did return, but they, they didn't really want to build the city and they had fights over it and they kind of built it. And then it stopped. I mean, it was a disaster. And the Lord, the Lord says, I'm done. I'm, I, I, as we looked at in Daniel, I, I said 70 years, now it's 70 times seven. And for 500 years, uh, this exile has been going on. And even though they're back in the land, they don't own the land, right? The land has been, you know, it was taken by the Babylonians and then it was taken by the Persians and then it was taken by the, the Greeks and, and now the Romans have it. And so even though they're home, they're still in exile. But the King of Kings is coming. The Son of David is coming. The one is coming that was prophesied and promised and that of his kingdom, there would be no end. And many people have kind of lost hope in this. It's like, you know, it's like even people think about the second coming of Christ. Like, hey, it's 2,000 years, you know. Uh, you just, it starts to, your, your mind drifts, you know, in 2,000 years. Um, and so also here with the promises of Messiah, for many of the Jews, it was still a longing. For many of the Jews, it was like, I, I don't know, I got, I got to make a living. You know, I got things to do here. And we get on with life. But here we are, we know that at the beginning of the Gospels, the time has come. Messiah has been born, and John the Baptist is the one commissioned to go before him and to announce it. Hear ye, hear ye, right? The king is taking his throne. And so John does this. John makes his way out to the wilderness to herald in the coming of the kingdom. And people go out to meet him. They go out to the Jordan where he is out there preaching and baptizing, and slowly but surely, people start coming out to the Jordan Valley uh, in mass to hear him and to be baptized by him to see what's going on. Now, he was a, he was a man that even at his birth, when his birth came, uh, you know, his father was a priest, you know, and uh, so it was. It was known this was not a, a, a birth that happened off in, on the margins. I mean, this was big news uh, that uh, that uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth were were expecting, uh, and so they kept their eye. They at the actual at the time of the announcement, even people said, "What what kind of child will this be?" You know, uh, th this seems miraculous. This is of the Lord, uh, and so they kept their eye on John the Baptist, and now here he is out in the wilderness, and people are coming out to hear him preach. And so I want us to think about this because, John, if I asked you, probably before this sermon, if you had to just summarize John's preaching, the message of John's preaching, what would you say it is? I think many of us uh, would could put it in, in one word, repent. He says, repent for the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, is at hand. That's the message that... John comes preaching. So I want us to think about that today. First, let's begin in, in verse 7 with a, you know, again, we're kind of used to this. This is where you, you read the Bible and these stories are familiar to you. And in some sense, they lose their, their sting or their, you know, their zing. Um, 
so we know the story, right? John's out in the wilderness. These people come out to him and he, you know, John, he's this, you know, wild haired guy in camel hair, you know, clothes and he's eating locusts and honey. And you know, he's, 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 he's a strange character. You know, one of the, just a role. He, he's, he's like an Old Testament prophet. I mean, Ezekiel was a strange character too. Uh, and so here comes John the Baptist. He's out there doing this thing. So we know that. But boy, his words here are strong, are they not? In verse 7, the multitudes have gathered, and he greets them this way. Then he says to the multitude that came out to be baptized to him, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So these people, you know, schlep out there into the wilderness to get, to get with John, and you'd think he'd be like, wow, you know, great. Good to see you guys. Hey, all right, come on, bring it in, bring it in. You know, and, and let, me, let me give you the gospel and, and you know, repent for the kingdom of God. And no, they, these people come all the way out there and he says, hey, you brood of snakes. You know, who told you to come out here? You're pretty strong, you know. It's not the way that, uh, that you really, you know, start a movement or, or kind of, you know, it certainly, it certainly violates every church growth uh, manual that's out there. If you want to build a church and grow them, this is not the way you greet visitors when they finally show up. Hey, what are you doing here? You know, it's just, uh, you know, that would not be the best way to do it. But that's how John does it. John's not holding back, and he sees these people gathering, and he greets them by calling them a brood of vipers. Now, Let's just pause for a second and think about that. For, so brood of vipers means you offspring of snakes. <laughs> you know. So is that just John is like a local kind of colloquial thing you just throw out there? Um, maybe it is. But, but let's, let's think about this with biblical lenses and think about where we've heard about offspring of snakes before. In the very beginning of the scriptures, in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sin and the Lord comes and he starts handing out the curses, he starts with the serpent. And as he gets to the serpent, he says, you know, uh, on, your, you know you'll, on your belly you will crawl, you'll eat dust, you know. But then in the curse to the serpent, he gives a promise to Adam and Eve. Now, they're just, they're trembling, you know, they're waiting for their curse to come. But as they're waiting for their curse, they, they are hearing the curse to the serpent. And the curse to the serpent is, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her seed, her offspring, and your offspring. He, her offspring, will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. Okay, then he moves to the, you know, then he moves to the woman. But, when he brings the curse to the woman, she has the echoes of that promise. Wow, she's going to have an offspring. It means we're not going to die today. So she has that kind of ringing in her ears. At that moment, we find out that really the rest of history can be divided into two groups. The offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. You are one or the other. You are either in Christ, we know, or you are with the serpent. And so when we think of it in that way, I mean, John, I think, in, is pulling on that language too. You, you are the offspring of the serpent. Very strong, very strong language. This isn't just a, like a little dig. Hey, you snakes. You know, it's, it's you're, you're the offspring of the serpent. Um, so very, very strong. 
Then he said to the multitudes who came out to be baptized, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, this I think is important because it sets the context of John's ministry in a context of wrath and coming judgment. And the rest of everything John's going to say, it has an edge to it. Now, again, we're talking about the proclamation of the coming of Christ, yet everything John is talking about is tough to hear. You're, you're, you're the offspring of serpents. Who told you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Don't you even dare say, he says to them, you have Abraham as your father. God can raise up child, children of Abraham from these stones. I tell you the truth, the ax is laid at the root of the tree. Every tree that does not bear fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I mean, like, wow. This, this, is, this is the messenger that's coming to proclaim the coming of the kingdom. This is the messenger that is heralding the coming of Messiah. And it's hard words, language of wrath and of fire and of axes and of snakes. So John comes in strong in this context of wrath. That is, what John is introducing in the coming of Messiah is something in which the stakes are very high. He is introducing Christ and the coming of the kingdom in the context of wrath and of judgment. Who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, they're, they're thinking to themselves, what? <laughs> they're not going, well, let me explain who told us about the wrath. No, they don't know anything about the wrath. But John sees them coming out here. They're scurrying like rats off a ship out into the wilderness. Who told you to flee from the wrath to come? Well, they don't know anything about the wrath to come, but John's going to let them in on what that means. Now, he gives them a charge, and we'll come back to this in a second. The charge he's going to give them is bear fruit worthy of repentance. But he warns them before he does, again, not to say, well, we have Abraham as our father. Okay, so the context of John's ministry is there is a wrath that is coming. In fact, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So we're right on the doorstep of the day of wrath. And he warns them, and when you think about wrath coming, you know, who, who wants to think about that? So we all, if we think about wrath coming, we're thinking, okay, how do I get through that? You know, what's, how do we relieve this pressure that's on us right now, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, to think about us standing before the judgment of God? And he knows what they're going to say. He knows they're going to say, well, we're children of Abraham. Right, we're, we're Abraham's seed. We're, we're, we are the offspring of Abraham to whom the covenant of promise is given. That's their go-to. At least we have that. A lot of uncertainties in the world, but I know I'm a son of Abraham. And John just takes it right away from him. Says, don't say that. Don't think to say to comfort yourself, well, I am a son of Abraham. God can raise up sons to Abraham from these stones. God is not impressed with your pedigree. God is not impressed with your lineage and your bloodline. Now, for us in here, who that is not our plea, then what, what else can we fill in there? Church attendance. Like, think about, think about the, whatever the ritualistic. Now, rituals are not bad. There's nothing bad with, about being a son of Abraham. These things are not bad things. 
but when they become the things we rely on for our acceptance before God, then the good thing becomes bad. It's a thing that can't save you. There's a lot of good things on a ship, but when you get thrown overboard, the one thing you need is a life preserver, and there's a lot of other good things that were on there, but they're not going to help you now. And when, when we're thinking about our standing before the Lord in judgment, what is the thing we need? And, and they're going to reach for, the thing they're going to reach for is I'm a child of Abraham. And he's like, nope, that's not going to do it for you. And we know this. We've heard it a hundred times. Your church attendance ain't going to do it for you. The fact that you've, that you've been baptized, as important as that is, and as good as that is, it's not going to do it for you. The fact that, you know, whatever, you've been a Christian for 40 years, the fact that you, I mean, these things all get taken away from you. Or, or then outside of the church, just, you know, your rank, your, your success in this life, the things that give you some weight and value within our world that do carry weight within here, that make you something. Like, all of that doesn't matter. He just, don't think to say, God is not impressed. God can raise up people. Don't say, oh, well, I was a pastor. I was a pastor. God can replace me like that. You think God's going, oh, no, what if Bill, something happens to Bill? God's just like, There's, there, I, I can raise up a pastor like that. I, 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 can take, I can take a man who persecuted the church and make him the apostle to the Gentiles like that if I need to. You know, I can, that's what I can do. I can raise up children of Abraham from stones. So he, he strips away from us even that little bit of, of, self, of, of self-encouragement that we have takes it right away and warns them in verse 9, even now. Now remember, Jesus hasn't even come on the scene. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John the Baptist begins the ministry of Jesus in a context of judgment. So right now, your claim to be children of Abraham is not going to cut it. So let's rethink it right now. Judgment is upon us. The wrath of God is here today. The kingdom is upon us. Now, what do we do about this? That's the question that they're going to ask. They're going to come and say, what shall we do? Perfect question. But John has already said up in verse 8, therefore. So he kind of gave us a therefore, and then he went back to, so he told us, there are brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, therefore. But what he says after that also plays back into the therefore, right? Judgment is coming. Therefore, bear fruit worthy of repentance. Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Knowing that the day of wrath is upon us, knowing that the day of judgment is coming should then drive us, he says, to bear fruit worthy of repentance. To repent of our sins. Now, again, it's a word that we kind of know, we use. What is repentance? Repentance means a turning. A turning away. A changing of not only our mind, but our whole orientation, that we are, we are oriented toward our sin. We, 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 we attend to our sins, our idols, our, the things that tempt us and woo us. 
that whisper to us. I have Augustine in my head because of what I was reading in the confessions with the students the past week. You know, he, he, was, he was about at his conversion, but he said that the, the, the chains of my sin were holding me. He, 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 part of him wanted to go to Jesus, but the, to convert, but the chains of his sins were holding him. And he said, my, my sins kept whispering to me. You know, they were whispering to me like, are you sure you don't, you want to live without us? You know, it's like, oh man, yeah, that's what sin does. Are you sure you want to give me up? And what we do is we can't, we, we want to look toward Jesus, but we keep looking back toward our sin. So we're, this is what we're doing. We're oriented toward the things that tempt us and woo us. We're looking at them. We're entertaining them. We're attending to them. We're conceding to them. Repentance is a turning away, showing them our backside, and attending to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not saying, well, okay, that's fine. Let me, let me, you know, let me try and deal with Jesus over here. And I got my sins sitting right here. No, repentance is a literal turning away. It is emptying my hands of the idols and then filling my hands, you know, grabbing hold of the hands of Jesus Christ. That's what repentance is. It's very dramatic. It's, it's more than just confession. So what we do every Sunday when we have corporate confession, we're, we're acknowledging that we're sinners. And that's very important. That's the first step to repentance. But that's not necessarily repentance, just confessing it. Because I can still be attending to the sin and confessing, oh, Lord, I just, you know, I'm struggling with this thing. Please forgive me. And there's forgiveness. But we may not have repented because we're right back entertaining it again. As soon as we, we get the forgiveness and the minute it starts whispering to us again, we're right back. We're right back at it. Repentance is a turning away. And John says, okay, so here's what we're to do. Being that the ax is laid to the root of the tree, like judgment is right here now. Now is the time of decision. Now is the time at which we've got to do something about this. There's no more time to waste. The ax is laid to the root of the tree. The, 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 the tree feller has the axe, he's sighting it up. He's got it lit right there at the end of the tree and it's going to be a one fell swoop and boom, the tree's coming down and we're going to inspect the tree then for its fruit. So now is the time to think about these things and what we must do is bear fruit worthy of repentance. Okay, what does that look like? And that is exactly the questions that the audience, the congregation, the gathered come to him with. The people here, they're cut to the heart. Just like in, in Peter's sermon in, in Acts 2, when he's done preaching, they come to him and they say, what should we do with this? Like, okay, that is, that's a good response to a sermon. Okay, you got me. What do I do? What do you want me to do? And John just gives the most basic and fundamental things. So the people come saying to him, what shall we do then? So here's what repentance looks like. And he answered them. So now we're going to get three groups of people. We're going to get sort of just the common people. Just the masses going, okay, what do we do about this? Then we're going to get tax collectors, a particular group, a couple tax collectors come to him. And then we're going to get some soldiers. So we're going to get a couple different fasts. But all of this is sets us up for, for us to ask, okay, what's it mean for me? So first, the general people, what shall we do then? And he answered them, he who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. This is not like 
highfalutin monastic stuff here. Like he, he doesn't he doesn't give them the rule of Saint Benedict and say, okay, look, here's the things you have to do. You need to begin fasting. You need to begin doing that. That's all good stuff too. But it's like, you know what it looks like? Stop thinking about yourself and love your neighbor. You're gathering up tunics. You're gathering up food. You have plenty for yourself, but you have lost sight of your neighbor. So here's what repentance looks like. Repentance looks like you who have, give to those who do not. That's, that's a way of turning from your self-obsession from your gathering, 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 and lifting your eyes to the need and begin giving, giving. It's very practical. It's something we can all think about. We can say, hmm, am I a gatherer? Am I a gatherer? If I'm a gatherer, <clears throat> then my repentance needs to look like giving. I need to undo. It's not just, I need to, you know, I need to be convicted about my gathering. My, my, the, the constant feathering of my nest. I need to be convicted about that. I need to confess it. Yeah, but you also need to turn from it and begin taking the feathers out and giving them to those who need feathers. Taking out what we have and giving it to those who don't have. Very practical. You know, in, in I think it's in Colossians when, when uh, Paul is going down the put off the old man, put on the new, you know? And again, there's this principle where it's not just you've got to stop doing bad things. It's not just, okay, put off the old man. No, but you need to put off the old man and put on the new. You need to put off, he says, put off stealing. Now he goes even more dramatic than just feathering your nest. He says, put off stealing and put on charitable giving. But the problem is not having stuff. The problem is having stuff to have stuff. Right? So put off stealing and put on hard work that you might have that you might give to those who are in need. So it's not just, okay, okay you know what? Mm, I keep stealing. I keep feathering my own nest. I really need to get a hold on this and stop doing that. Well, here's how you stop doing it. Give. Gift. So that's what he says. Repentance looks like a turning here from going in one direction, going to another. The problem is not having. The problem is keeping. The problem is gathering. The problem is feathering. So, okay, he who has to let him give away. And again, he's not saying have no possessions. This, isn't an, this is not a monastic uh, 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 vow of poverty, though there's nothing wrong with that. If you say, you know what, I don't want anything. That's what the monks do. The monks take a vow, I will own nothing. Everything we have will be in communion, but I, ha I have nothing of myself and everything I have, I sell and give away. I mean, Jesus, Jesus tells the rich young ruler to do this. There's nothing wrong with that. If you feel convicted to do that today, you will receive a pat on the back from me. I'll say, okay, wow, I'll be humbled. But I won't, I won't say, hey, 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 don't do that. Jesus cites that as a valid possibility, but that's not what he's saying here. He's not saying, oh, that's the only way to do this is you can't have any possessions. That's not the way to do this. You can't, you, you've got to give away everything you have. Jesus, there's nothing in the Bible that says we're not allowed to have a home. We're not allowed to have a tunic. But it's when our eyes get turned into ourselves, when it's about me, 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 and gathering, gathering, protecting, preserving, feathering, and so forth. Okay, then in verse 12, another group come up to him, tax collectors. Now, you know these characters. Ooh, a hated bunch, a hated bunch. 
you know, we, none of us like paying taxes, okay? And we don't really get to see our tax collectors, you know? We kind of maybe know who they are, but we just send a, I have to, you know, my taxes are not in my mortgage, you know, so I got to write that check, you know, to my school taxes in August and my land taxes in January. And so I, you know, I despise them from a distance, you know, as I, as I put it in the envelope and think, oh, I know what, I know what it was like in the times of Jesus. Um, I, I send that off, you know, but, but, but even different in this day, like we all recognize, okay, I hate doing this, but all right, we get it. We got to do it, right? We live, we live in, in a community. We need, you know, we, we actually need paved roads. I do like those. So we'll, I'll pay. But in this day, okay, it was that, but the tax collectors were a seedy, seedy bunch, you know, because Rome didn't have an internal revenue service. They had guys who would contract with them to collect taxes for them. And they would collect the taxes, whatever the agreement was to Rome. Uh, you know, here's what the taxes are for this region. Okay, this guy wins the contract to be the tax collector and he'll go do it and he'll pay Rome whatever he's, but he's got to get paid too. So that gets filtered in there a little bit. He's got to get his cut out of it. But of course, you know how that goes. You know, how do I know? I, you know, here I am, Bill Spanger. I'm a, I'm a guy, you know, just trying to make a living here in, in Bethlehem. And, um, you know, the tax collector shows and goes, you know, hey, don't blame me. You know, it's Rome, you know, Rome, you know what they're saying. Here's what they told me I got to collect. Well, I have no idea. And so these guys are collecting well over what they're, what they're supposed to be collecting. You talk about feathering their own nest. These guys were known for, for overcharging and taking care of themselves. Not only that, but they were Jews themselves and they're collecting taxes for an occupying power. I mean, there are all kinds of of dicey things going on with these tax collectors. They really were the lowest of the low. It's interesting then that Jesus, when he chooses his disciples, does not merely choose fishermen, but he comes to Matthew, the tax collector, and he says, come follow me. I want you on my team. I mean, whoever told Matthew that he's wanted, whoever, whoever told Matthew that, yeah, I choose you. It's like people walk by Matthew and spit on the ground, you know, and Jesus says, hey, Come follow me. I want you on my team. So pretty amazing stuff. Jesus spent time with these people. We know that. So the tax collectors come to be baptized. And he said, they said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, he didn't say to them, stop collecting taxes for an occupied power. He didn't, he does not say that. Very interesting. He says, collect no more than what is appointed for you. Do your job. I know it's a terrible job. I know it's a job in which you're despised, but it's your job. Okay, that he he is not saying it's a it's it's a it's dishonorable in the sense that it's sinful to do. No revolutionary spirit here among John the Baptist nor of Jesus. Right when Jesus finally gets tried by Pontius Pilate, he says, "My kingdom is not of this world," meaning I do not get my authority from this world. Uh, but in in some sense, I'm authority over all. But I'm, he's not coming to, if you will, overthrow Rome. Neither is John the Baptist. Go ahead and collect your taxes. It's like Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But, but do it honestly. Stop again, in this case, feathering your own nest, but by doing it in a way that's exploiting your neighbor. That's not, now, you're, now you're not only not giving to your neighbor, you're taking from your neighbor. You're exploiting your neighbor with the authority you have as a tax collector for Rome. So do your job your secular job, even for a secular power like Rome. It's like Daniel living in Babylon and having to serve Nebuchadnezzar. It's like, do your job, just do it honestly in a way that loves your neighbor, that doesn't exploit your neighbor. 
That's what repentance, see, repentance here is very practical. Okay, do your job in a way that's honorable before God and that loves your neighbor. To the, to the slaves, uh, uh, Paul says in Colossians, again, do your work not as pleasing men, not as men pleasers, but as unto the Lord in all things. Right? Do it to the best of your ability as unto the Lord. And that's what repentance looks like. What are you doing your job for? What is the standard by which you do your work, whatever it is, paid or unpaid? Is it, is it enough to get by? Is it to, to again, for, for self, uh, for, for, to, to please yourself and to feather your own nest again? What is it for? Do your work as unto the Lord, as if all your work is living sacrifice up to Him. That's repentance. That's just, like, I can think practically. Like, what does that look like in my work when I head back to work tomorrow? What does that mean for me? To serve in a way that honors the Lord. And finally then, soldiers come up to him saying, what shall we do? Now, imagine this. Are these Roman centurions? What are these people? Are these guards of the priests? I don't know who they are. But soldiers come up and they say, what shall we do? And again, he doesn't say, well, get one, get out of the military. Or one, get out of a position where you might kill people. That he doesn't. He does not say that to them. So again, what he doesn't say is also important for us to hear. So he said to them, "Do not intimidate anyone, or accuse falsely, and be content with your wages." Again, boy, you have power and authority within society. You can do whatever you want. Who are these people to resist you? If you accuse them, they're cooked. If you say, "Give me this," what are they going to do? Say no to you? So very easy to exploit from a position of power. He says, don't do that. Again, do your duty even to Rome, or whoever it is, do your duty in a way that is honorable. This is, very, again, I just think very practical for us to think about what repentance looks like in our life. So even on the way down here, I was thinking to myself, I was thinking, okay, where, where are my weaknesses? Like, where are my tendencies? Where are the things that that I tend toward, and what would that look like for me then to say, okay, what is the counter to that? What is the thing I can do, not just in confessing it, but actually saying, okay, let me do the, the, the counter. I mean, that's what we all need to do. We need to think, we need to come to the Lord today and say, Lord, what do I do with this? What do I do with this? If you want to come to me, you can come to me. We can think it through together. But we can come to the Lord and we can say, Lord, what do I need to do with this? What does repentance look like for me? Where am I blind? You know, you become a tax collector. It just becomes easy to do. It's what we all do. We're tax collectors. Yeah, you got to get what you can get. Yeah, we're soldiers. We're not going to take that guff from somebody. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have them locked up. It's what you do because I'm a soldier. I'm a human being. I gather tunics because what if one goes bad? I got to have another one. It's what you do. And then you need somebody like John the Baptist to go, why do you have two tunics when that guy has none? To say to you, hey, why are you collecting more than, you, than, you said, than you're required to do? That's stealing. Hey, why are you using your power to harm people? That's exploit, exploitation. You know, it's like smelling salts in front of our nose. They're like, wow, okay, yeah. In my world of soldiery, we all do it. So I just become blind to it. In my world of tax collecting, I just become blind to it. In my world of capitalistic prosperity, I just become blind to this. And then you need a squirrely-haired John the Baptist to come and say, why are you doing that? We all need that. So we should be asking the Lord, Lord, what do we do with this? So very practical actions. Now, immediately people are like, you know what? I think you're the Messiah. Like this cuts to the heart, you know? And they're like, hey, I think you're the guy. Are you the guy we've been waiting for? 
And, and John says, no, 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 no. John answers saying in verse 16 to all, I baptize you with water, but there is one mightier than I coming whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. Slaves loosen sandal straps and in, with, in relation to him, I am not even worthy to be his slave. That is the difference in degree between him and me. I am not, like, as, whatever you think about my greatness, I'm not even worthy to be this one's slave, the one who is coming after me. He is the one you need to look to. And here in our repentance, ultimately what our repentance is, is turning from our sin, yes, and bearing fruit that evidences the repentance. But ultimately the turning of our sin is a turning all the way around to Jesus. And that's what John the Baptist does. Yes, he hits you hard. He cuts you. The ax is at the root of the tree. Tells you what the fruit of repentance will look like. You know, in James chapter 2, which was our New Testament reading today, you say you have faith, but I will show you my faith by my works. How do you know you've repented? I don't know. You're giving away tunics. How do I know I've repented? I've cut back on how much I'm collecting in taxes. How do you know you've repented? I've stopped exploiting my neighbor. That's the fruit of it. So repentance is turning, but it's not turning merely from our sin to works. It's turning from our sin to Jesus. And the fruit of that is works. How do you know you've done it? Again, I just want to make sure that we place the fruits worthy of repentance in their proper place in this turning. You don't turn from this to good works. You turn from the sin to Jesus, and the evidence of the turn is works. The evidence of the turn is fruit. You will know you've done it because you'll start to see fruit. And maybe the fruit's just baby fruit, but you'll watch it grow, but there will be fruit. You will start to live life differently. And John points them all the way around. He points them, again, I have a painting in the, in the school of, of the crucifixion, and in, in the crucifixion, is John the Baptist, who we know is not there. He, he was already dead. But it's got John the Baptist standing and pointing his long bony finger at the cross because that's the ministry of John the Baptist. Look to Jesus. And that's what he's doing here. Are you the guy? Are you the Christ? No, 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 no. I baptize you with water. But there is one mightier than I am coming whose sandal strap I am not worthy to lose. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, immediately he goes back to judgment. Verse 17 the winnowing fan is in his hand. He will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor. You know, you gather all the wheat kernels, you put them in a big pile, you beat them down. And in beating them, the little shell around the kernel, the chaff kind of falls off and you got a big pile now because you, you're, you're beating the grain and now you got a pile of, of grain kernels, but also all the shells and chaff, it's all in a big pile. And the chaff is light. And so you come with a, a winnowing fan and on a windy day, and you, you go to your threshing floor and after you've beaten it and you throw it up into the wind and the wind carries the light chaff over there and it ends up in a pile and the grain falls back. And you separate. And John is saying, the one who's coming is mightier than I and he's, winning, he's ready. He's coming for separation. Sheep and goat time. Chaff and wheat time. And the wheat he will gather and store and delight in, and the chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire. Oh no. Again, th there's urgency here, brothers and sisters. There's urgency. Right for us then to ask, what do we do? Because he got the winnowing fan. The axe is laid at the root of the tree. The winnowing fan is in his hand. But notice this. 
that what he's coming to do is to baptize you in fire. That is to say, Jesus is going to baptize you by the Spirit in fire so that when the day of fire comes, it's already done for you. The chaff are not in Christ and they will be burned with unquenchable fire. But for those who are baptized in fire, we've already experienced the fire, but our fire was a purging, cleansing fire in the Holy Spirit in Christ. Remember the event that's going to happen here, and we're not going to read it. It's the next event, but it's the baptism of Jesus. All this talk about judgment, all this talk about fire, all this talk about repentance, and then in the line of repenters is Jesus himself. And John is going to say, after this fiery sermon, one greater than I, Jesus shows up to be baptized, and John's actually going to be like, I, wait, what? No, you, oh, so I go in? And Jesus says, no, 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 I've got to go in. You baptize me, John. And John's going, no, that, even the, even the messenger of the kingdom doesn't get that. He's like, wait, no, because this is a baptism of repentance. Like, I need repentance. I'm not worthy to lose your sandal strap, but you're, but you're going to go, and you have nothing to repent of. And yet, nonetheless, he says, John, it must be done. Baptize me. And Jesus goes into the water to be baptized. Now, what's he doing in there? And think, think of it this way. Think of all the other people who have just been baptized before Jesus and the idea of a baptism as a cleansing, a washing away of their sins, right? It's about, they're going in symbolically repenting. The baptism itself is not doing it, but let's just keep it in the world of symbolism. They're symbolically repenting. We're assuming they mean it because they're going in and doing so. We'll grant them the benefit of the doubt that they're going in and symbolically repenting and having their sins washed away. Which means, symbolically, that this water is getting more and more and more polluted. The water which was clean, by the time Jesus gets to it, it's a swamp. It's a nasty, polluted, toxic waste dump of sins that have now been washed off. And Jesus now shows up and goes into the water. He goes into the pollution. The clean one, except his baptism is sort of, in that way, an anti-baptism. It's like he, he goes into the polluted water to take the pollution upon himself. You've, you guys just go in there and have it washed off. I will go in to take it upon myself. And hence begins a three-year ministry of him now bearing the pollution of the world until finally upon the cross, if you will, having gathered it all up, he then deals with it and submits himself to the axe, submits himself to the fire. Indeed, the axe is laid at the root of the tree and Jesus will take it and the fire is ready to come down and he will take the burning. He will drink the cup of wrath. And John the Baptist is pointing, even John the Baptist doesn't know how great it is to have him with him. But we do. And he points us to Jesus Christ. For it is in Jesus Christ that the wrath has been taken. He baptizes you in fire now. You're fireproof, if you will. You're fireproof. He's baptized you in fire. You've been purged by fire. And so we, we no longer fear the fire. That's the good news. This is the good news of the gospel. And you will know it is yours by seeing the fruit of repentance. The fruit of repentance doesn't earn it for you. The fruit of repentance is like evidence for you. You say you have faith, I will show you my faith by my works. 
And so, brothers and sisters, let us, as we begin this season of Lent and contemplate our relationship with the Lord, let us have a little smelling salts broken and put under our nose. Let us be jolted. That's what Lent is for. Let us contemplate not only our mortality, but the fact that the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Judgment has already begun upon the world. It happened at Golgotha. It has started. We, so, so let us see that and repent. Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Let us turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and ask very practically, Lord, what shall I do with this? Break me of my complacency and help me see what I need to turn from. What idols am I holding in my hand? What sins am I allowing to whisper to me? What chains are still holding me that I might turn from them and find in the Lord Jesus Christ life and cleansing and purging in the fire in which he baptizes us? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we confess our sins and we ask for the gift of your Spirit, which gives the gift of repentance. Help us to turn from them and not to continually entertain them and attend to them and to listen to their whisperings as we continually confess. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who went into the polluted waters for us that we might be made clean. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who bore the fire of judgment that we might be purified. So Father, encourage us this morning, but convict us as well, that on that day of judgment, we might stand together with the Lord Jesus Christ, gathered together in the barn of eternal life, Father, to give you glory. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.